The NADOC theme for 2021 is Heal Country. This week, we're joined by Brenton Turner to unpack what that means and why this concept is more important than ever. In the process, we'll find out the harrowing experiences that Brenton's family had to go through as part of the stolen generation, but also what it will take for there to be hope for a brighter future. Welcome to Signs of the Times Radio. It is awesome to have Brenton Turner joining me this week for Signs of the Times Radio. Brenton's joining me all the way from WA. How's That's life right. out there in Perth? It's good, mate. We're COVID restrictions are starting to ease up, and yeah, no, it's it's beautiful over here. I think I think the rest of the country is pretty jealous of you guys, man. Like like I see your your Facebook stories, and you get to go for a run every morning. Well, I guess we get to go for a run too, but I, don't, I definitely don't get harbour views for my run in the morning. <laughs> no, it's pretty. I'm not far from the Derbul Yerrigan. That's the Noongar word for the Swan River. Yeah, no, it's beautiful, man. I try to get up. It's definitely a pretty city. Yeah. Were you born in Perth? Like, have you been living in Perth your whole life? It's never a short answer. I'll give you <laughs> the quicker version. I was born in Canberra. My family are actually from the Northern Territory. So I'm a, a Eastern Arunda um, on my father's side, and Alawamara, my mother, comes from a place and her family from a place near Broadwood. The government work took my family to Canberra, and so I was born there, and we then moved to a place called Tennant Creek, spent probably four years, early years of my life in, in Tennant Creek, and then most of my formative years up in uh, Darwin, Northern Territory. And then we, we moved around a little bit, so I lived in Melbourne, Canberra, and spent some time in Newcastle, New South Wales, uh, close to 10 years. I lived in Kimberley, Adelaide, yeah, for the last, let's say, 10 years. Wow. Beautiful place, yeah. Noongar country, and as I normally do, I'm not going to start off by just acknowledging the Wajaka elders and pay my respect to the Noongar people, the Noongar nation. And, yeah, what a privilege it is to be um, on their country. Absolutely. So you've, you've obviously travelled far and wide. I mean, you've seen pretty much every corner of Australia that one can think of. But what is it that you've uh, settled in, in Perth to do? Uh, what is it that your profession is, Brenton? My profession, I work with the state government. And I've just moved into a role working on our infrastructure projects. So my role is to deliver social outcomes and drive Aboriginal business opportunities and cultural learnings and also you know, the, the, the cool bits, the newer input into placemaking. So we have an opportunity to work with the architects to tell those stories through the hard structures. And so in terms of what I do, it's, yeah, working working in the infrastructure industry now. Full credit to, to people like yourself who are providing those mentorship opportunities for people out there. So full credit to the work you're doing, man. It's it's pretty awesome. Pretty interestingly, though, and this is why we're talking about this time of the year, in fact, this week in particular, which is NADOC week. That's why we're getting you on to, to have a chat about some of this stuff. However, it might be the first time that someone who's listening to this has ever heard of the word or the week, NADOC week. Mm-hmm. For those people, can you just fill in a little bit about what NADOC week is about? 
For sure. Look, Madoc Week, it's an opportunity for us to celebrate our First Nations culture. Each year we build on those previous themes and this year's theme is Hill Country. I guess to give you some idea of why it's, it's such a special week, it's an opportunity where it's an opportunity for us as a community to celebrate our connection to culture, to take stock on where we've come as a nation mm. and really to focus on, you know, some of our champions in the community and achievements as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah. So to my understanding, there's, there's some stuff that are happening around um, NAIDOC week as well, like events, obviously not in New South Wales because we're in the middle of a lockdown here, mm. but over there in Perth, what sort of activities are happening at the moment? Because I understand that you're, you're actually, after we record this podcast, you're heading off to a NAIDOC event. Definitely. Yeah, so I guess that's one of the privileges of, of the work that I do. We, in, in terms of working with organisations with reconciliation um, action plans, yeah, I'm taking part in, in quite a few NAIC events through, through the week. So, yeah, I guess we, we'll talk about the theme it's Central Healing Country, what that means to us personally, as a community as well. And it's an opportunity to, to, to get our elders front and centre as well for some storytelling. And there's it, quite a lot of reverence as well around those, you know, welcome to countries and, and wisdom. There's some truth-telling, but... Yeah, our, our elders, you know, through our culture, we've, we've had storytelling has just been a, a, such a big part of our culture. And so, you know, to, to listen to some of our elders do those work in the countries, they're gifted orators. And so there's, there's always wisdom and it, it's almost a spiritual event that, you know, you, you take away. So yeah, in terms of what, what I'm involved in through the week, there's a whole number of different events. So we celebrate, you know, the entrepreneurship that's out in the community in the way of artists. We have a number of Aboriginal catering companies that will, will get to come in and um, provide some education around native food and native ingredients. There's art activities that we, we've, we've got our workplaces to get involved in, which is pretty significant. And then there's a whole lot of rich resources in the virtual space as well. So there's a, I'll point your listeners actually to a resource called Common Ground and they've got a, a, a huge list of world class films with, yeah, some really enjoyable, enjoyable cinema. So definitely you know, check, check some of that out. It sounds like an awesome festival all around and, and it's not just for indigenous people, right? Like anybody can join in and celebrate indigenous culture at these events, yeah? Yeah, so Daniel, you know, we make up, as, as First Nations people in this country, we make up about 3 to 4% of the community. Mm. So you're 100% right, you know, this, yes, it is a week for, for us to celebrate, you know, indigenous excellence in the community, for truth telling, to come together. You know, a, a big part of this, we all live in a community together, and for the majority of, of Australians, it's an opportunity for them to tap into that rich history which goes beyond colonisation. Colonisation is only 100 years. Our history goes back for thousands of years and one of the oldest you know, civilizations on, on this planet. So, yeah, it's a week to stop, reflect and educate ourselves, not only on you know, where we've come from in the past. Culture is contemporary. So to see culture living and breathing and 
through some of our, you know, leaders and young people, learn about culture, learn about the traditional owners or custodians of, of country, you know, wherever you are, and, you know, pay respects also. So that's, yeah, an enormous opportunity for the rest of the community to come together around this week. Yeah. One of the interesting things that I actually picked up on when I was doing my own sort of education on NADOC week was that I didn't know, but NADOC week was started in actual response to Australia Day on 26th of January. Now, I mean, most people who see the news each year notice that there is a push to change the date. I had no idea that this is a push that has been happening for this period of time for over a century. Could you tell us a little bit about that part of it? Wow. See, this, this actually warms my heart. You know, when I come across, you know, non-Aboriginal people in the community that have taken time to, to do some research, educate themselves on, on, you know, historical factors like that, it's actually quite healing. So, you know, one, I didn't know that, but I do know that, you know, we, we there has been a political movement, you know, in place for, for quite a long time. Mm. And, you know, in the political landscape, yeah, we have been fighting for recognition to be counted as, as people, as human beings, you know, in, in this country. And that recognition, is that just a matter of the Prime Minister saying so, or does it need to be ingrained in somewhere like the Constitution? I mean, is it already in the Constitution or, or not? Yeah, well, technically, I guess if you go back to the 1967 referendum, we were first counted as people. So we were counted in the census. We were given the rights to, you know, be part of the society. But there's still many barriers, in, you know, even that happened in 1967. Things like stolen wages and stolen generation. We still had government policies that continued on past them that were, you know, negatively impacting you know, as a nation or as, as the first peoples of this country. And I guess we're, we're still healing from, from a lot of those policies. Yeah, and that really times in with the theme of heal country, because Australia does seem to have a very racist past. I mean, when you look at things like white Australia policy, we look at things like the stolen generation, which personally affected you, and we'll, we'll jump into that in just a moment. Healing is an important part of what our country needs to go through, hey? 100%, yeah, and it's such a I guess important part, you know, there's a few dimensions to that, you know, where individually we're all healing from some sort of trauma. The trauma that our community has experienced is disproportionate um, to, you know, most average Australians. The sad part is, you know, that a lot of that trauma through stolen generation, disparity in healthcare, incarceration rates. Sadly, we, in terms of being a developed country, we have the worst rates of youth incarceration in the world. Mm. Actually, it's in our backyard here in Perth. There's a place called um, Banksy Hill Detention Centre. And, yeah, so, you know, we, we boast the, the highest rates for locking up our health First Nations youth and have, you know, health issues. So these are some realities, I guess, that, that, that we're faced with in, in our community. And you know, an interesting aspect of uh, a lot of those youth that are locked up is most of them have health issues, and mm. mental health issues, like most of our inmates in the, in the justice system. But instead of being able to access good healthcare, 
you know, they're, they're caught up in a system um, where you know, they're, they're institutionalized and no access to healing, unfortunately. Mm. It's pretty sad that you say all that. I mean, there was a Royal Commission more than 20 years ago, well over 20 years ago, in the 90s, that had to do with Indigenous deaths in custody. Now, can you just sort of reflect on that Royal Commission? Did it change anything for for the better? Very few of those recommendations have actually been um, implemented. We've seen alarming rates of deaths in custody Mm. continue to rise. Any observer would say that that was ineffective and we need action so that our young men and women stop dying at the hands of law enforcement and the judicial service in this country. I'll just share a quick story. You know, I think globally people are well aware of, you know, that slogan, I can't breathe. Many people relate that to George Floyd Mm. and now, you know, a household name. Before that happened, David Dungai, you know, this young fella, 26-year-old Dungai man, he died in corrective services in, in custody at the Long Bay Correctional Facilities on the 29th of December in 2015. This was before anyone even knew George Floyd. Video went, went global. There were six custodial officers that went into his cell and then they jumped on him and he couldn't breathe. He sadly passed away at 3.42 on the 29th of December. And his last words were, I can't breathe, about seven times. Um, and he said, you know, I can't breathe, please don't um, let me up. Absolute tragedy. But many people in Australia have no idea um, who, who David Dungai is and, and, and what happened. Yeah. Um, there's just no level of education around, from, from what I've experienced in the community, around the black death in custody issue that we have. Well, we was- go as far as to say there's a you know, high level of ignorance. So, yeah, it's, it's something that needs attention and, and I believe more education. Last year when there was the, the Black Lives Matter rallies all across the world, you know, obviously, like you mentioned, what happened with George Floyd over in the United States, absolute tragedy there as well. I noticed that a lot of the, the Black Lives Matter rallies in Australia were actually doing so for on this topic of Indigenous deaths in custody. That was the sort of the target of the, the rally. Was that helpful in any ways to bring this up, this issue up in the context of this larger issue that is happening all over the globe? 100%. Yeah, it, it put it in the spotlight and it brought attention to it. Um, things that are swept under the carpet, so to say, media don't, doesn't pick it up. It was an opportunity to rally together. Because it was a global issue, so many people were impacted by what they were seeing over there in the United States and just the, the injustices. And, yeah, people of all different um, nationalities, including white Australians and other minority groups, were compelled to, to join us in our fight for, for, for justice in this community as well. So, yeah, it, it was a, a huge positive for the community. Like I said, it just it, it, it shone the spotlight on it for, for a season. We, we talk about the Black Lives Matter campaign and the Black Death in Custody. So, Tanya Day, so she's a Yorta Yorta woman from Victoria. She's a middle class woman. She's not someone that was living on the streets. She was inebriated on the train one day. She's got three, she had three kids that, you know, 
well educated and contributed to the community. And while she was travelling home, the security guard found her and um, called the cops. Now, the police got there. The treatment that she received in custody ended in her death. She died 17 days later. She had injuries to the head. And she was treated like an animal, basically, in custody, resulting in her losing her life. When they did the inquest, they asked the security guard, how many people do you find on the train each week? He said an average of three in every other. Do you call the cops on any of them? He said no. But there was an Aboriginal woman, and those negative stereotypes led to him calling the police. In the court of law, they used unconscious bias as a diagnosis or you know whatever the reason why. So it means that he didn't do it consciously. The community, I guess the, the, the socialisation that he's had led to him believing that this person was a threat. Mm. And, and yeah, it, it led to you know, another death in custody. So people don't wake up, this is my point, people don't wake up and say that they want to be, they're going to treat someone any differently. But when they come into someone from that race, which they harbour negative stereotypes against, it's an automatic process and they won't even realise that they've done it. And that's what the data will tell you when, it, when we look at healthcare in Australia, when we look at employment retention levels. Racism exists in, and it manifests itself in, in many forms. Some of it's overt, might be name-calling, some of it's covert. It, it may be passive things, things you don't say. It may be I've just got an opinion of what happened on the weekend around Adam Goods. No one's being racist. It may be that you don't have, you know, what you don't know is going to negatively impact how you behave, basically. I think you're right. A lot of people won't realise that's a driving force. Mm. An average Australian, you ask him, are you a racist? He'd probably tell you no. There's still underlying things there that, you know, a lot of us need to confront that we don't often, we don't even think that are there. Now, mm. uh, Brenton, just to, to sort of um, dial back and, you know, when you mentioned earlier about the stolen generation. Now, I remember uh, it was a few months ago that you and I were just texting and uh, you shared with me this article about your grandmother that had been published in the ABC. Can you just tell us about her story? We talk about the stolen generation government policies that, that affected our community, but for me, it's, 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 it's quite personal. I've seen the, the trauma, the, the lived experience of, of the stolen generation you know, with, with my two um, grandmothers on, on both sides, my father's side and my, and my mum's side. Interestingly enough, you know, I'll take a, a bit of time just to share a story about my father's mum right now, or my grandmother on my father's side. She was taken at the age of, I think, five. Mm. It's a bit of guesswork. But there was no history. My grandmother, there was obviously a lot of, a lot of a trauma attached to her experience. You never asked a question about her history. It was... You know, uh, just something that you never did. If you did, you know, you, you would check and you knew not to do that. And, you know, her, her brothers um, were also split up and taken to different um, parts of um, the country. So she had two younger brothers that were taken to um, Melville Islands, a place called the Tiwi Islands up in the Northern Territory. And then she was taken 
to a place called Kallang Kampian in Darwin. Mm. Yeah, loss of culture, loss of language, and I can't imagine you know the the treatment that that she would have got because um, you know, I've read another story that an auntie wrote who was in the home at the same time, and it was pretty horrible. You know, they they treated animals better in the community. Um, Why were they being taken and treated in this way? Like, what was the justification? Uh, it was part of the assimilation process. By the, by the government? Policy. Yeah, so the policy was to assimilate, to take kids that had light skin, and then the theory was that they would breed out the blackness over time. So, yeah, it, it's a form of genocide. It does sound very close to eugenics. That's shocking. My grandmother on my mother's side. She comes from a place called Roper River Mission back in the early 1900s. This was a place that they were starting to clear for industry, when I say industry, cattle stations. So there was a place called the African Cold Storage Company. Yeah, my mum's gone back and, and documented some of this history. Well, some of this history was documented. She's gone back and done some research. But they were hiring bounty hunters to basically go through and, and massacre and wipe out parts of our family that live there. Whoa. So, you know, my, my grandmother's mother and my great-grandmother, she was a survivor of a massacre. She was found at the age of about six months. Her family had been wiped out and someone come through after the massacre happened and, and found my grandmother there crying in a coolum and beside her, her mother. She was taken, it was a two-day trip by canoe to one of the missions there. It was an Anglican mission called the Roper River Mission. And that's where she lived the, uh, a huge part of her life because it just wasn't safe out there in, in, in the frontiers of, of you know, parts of the Northern Territory. So she got married on the mission. My, my grandmother um, was born at the mission or under a, under a tree not far from there. And sadly, a lot of connection to language and culture was also lost because although they had good intentions, you know, they were of this mindset that they were breeding out the noble savage. You know, we, we our, as a culture, we, we were considered as a, as a closer link to the, to the, um, to the apes or the animal kingdom. You know, it was in their best interest to show us Western culture. So yeah, that, that's, I uh, guess, some insights on, on some of my grandmother's history. It was my grandmother's mother okay. who was the survivor of that massacre. Yeah, and my grandmother Heather. Yeah, it's a story of resilience. When I look at my grandmother's story, and she's someone that I have um, so much admiration for, not just as someone that is has this huge amount of warmth and, and love, but you know, when I when I take time to study her or evaluate, you know, what, what her story and and the adversities um, that she's overcome, particularly in the way of education. She was only educated to primary school level. Later on in life, you know, she ended up working for the Department of Education and was able to influence, you know, Aboriginal education programs in, in the Northern Territory. So, you know, I've always looked up to her also because of her achievements. So 
she later went on to get her, for someone that didn't you know, get an education past, past primary school, she later went on to complete her graduate diploma in counselling through La Trobe University and became a stolen generations counsellor. So, you know, for many people, she was able to provide healing. You know, her work of divided life of service in the community. You've mentioned a little bit that your your grandmother had encounters with Christianity, and indeed, you know, some of your family members did too. How important has Christianity to you and your family? How how important has God and spirituality been? When I look back, for most of my life, I haven't been a Christian. But when I look back and I see where God has played a part in, you know, I guess, our family lineage, it's a huge testimony for me. The man that came along after that massacre had unfolded back home was a Christian man. So, you know, I believe that God intervened and saved my great-grandmother's life in that massacre. My mum, when she was raised, they, they didn't grow up Christians, but... She had her and my auntie, my mum's sister, they had a a letter that was delivered in the mail about, you know, do you want free Bibles? Now, they were poor. So they were like, yeah, we'll, we'll have a free Bible. It's free. Mm. And the second question was, would you like Bible study? And they took yes. So it turns out that the the people that were coming around to do Bible studies, also there was a link. Now, he was a teacher at, at one of the schools that my mum went to. And a man named Pastor Eric Davies ended up lining an opportunity for my mum and um, my auntie to get a, an Adventist education at Lilydale. So my mum only spent a year there, but she came back a vegetarian. She got a hold of a health message. And so we, we, we grew up with, with these health principles in our home which wasn't cool to not have coffee or not eat meat and not eat chicken or any of these things back then. But, you know, I, I praise God for my mum's access to those powerful health messages that came from that Adventist education. Mm. Christianity did did arrive with those first boats there way back when. And even though it was a, a sort of a foreign thing that came along, Christianity doesn't exactly have to mean a loss of cultural identity for Indigenous Australians, does it? No, in fact, there's there's so many parallels. We believe in a creator God. We have stories in our spirituality that align with stories from the Book of Revelation. These are powerful stories of significance in, in our own culture, and there's prophecy in those stars. So it wasn't a big jump for our traditional people, my ancestors, when they heard the story of the good news and our creator and Jesus. Well, I'll give you the example of up on the Torres Strait Islands. They actually celebrate this with a festival called the Coming of the Light. So many communities actually embraced it, not taking away from the atrocities that were imposed by the systematic removal of culture and stories and cultural practices. You know, I don't want to not acknowledge that and romanticize some of the mission work that was done. I you know, need to be real about how that's represented. But through that, there were some kind people that 
showed Christianity not only in principle but in practice and, 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 and kindness. So there were some kind people in those missions. And as I said before, in contrast to what was happening and in terms of there were bounty hunters going out and massacring people, some of those missions were a refuge. I'll also let you know that you know the ABS data, I think it's around 79% of Aboriginal people still identify um, you know, as Christian. Mm. For a lot of Indigenous Australians, obviously we know about things like dream time and stuff. Spirituality is a very important thing, isn't it? In Aboriginal culture, the spiritual world is not something of fairy tales. Mm. It, it's very real. It's not something you read about. It, it's a very real dimension. Yeah, it's quite different to you know, Western constructs, you know, constructs of, of spirituality. That, that world is very real, real because, you know, in Aboriginal culture, spirituality is one of the most important things. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, obviously your, your family have survived this tragedy from, from both sides. How has that impacted you yourself as being a, a third or fourth generation survivor of the stolen generation? How does that feel for you and your family? Is it something that you still see the effects of to this day? I think the science is really clear on the impacts of, of trauma or intergenerational trauma, and we're seeing that in health outcomes. So, you know, we have some of the poorest health outcomes in the world, highest rates of heart disease, diabetes, cancer, all of those leading you know, lifestyle diseases that affect our community. That's a reality for my family. My father, you know, our life expectancies even for developed countries in terms of indigenous people, are some of the worst in the world. They're worse than New Zealand, Canada, and the, and the United States in terms of our indigenous people. So, you know, the, my father, he died unexpectedly or um, suddenly from a heart attack at the age of 65. Not long after that, one of my parents, when I say one of my parents, my auntie, who also uh, raised me within months, an auntie of mine, got bowel cancer and then passed away eight months later. And then last year, my mum's brother, he, he got a tumour in his neck. Within six months, um, we lost him. So he actually came, stayed with our family and and we were able to care for him. And I guess the, the good news for that is he, he found God and after um, some years of you know living a wild lifestyle and being in bikey gangs, he, he gave his life to God and um, became a Sunday Adventist. Oh, wow. <laughs> he wasn't able to get baptized, but there was a professional faith ceremony that took place in the hospital where he was. He passed away within you know, about two weeks later. You know, my, my brother has type 1 diabetes. We talk about these as stats in the community, but, you know, I share those stories with they're very real for my immediate family. Yeah. I have noticed that um, so, well-being yeah, is definitely a big piece of emphasis for you as well. Is it because of that? Oh, 100%. Yeah. You know, we have an opportunity through lifestyle health to turn these things around. And this is why I guess we need to be on the front foot. Uh, modern medicine doesn't offer a lot of the answers to dealing with a lot of these lifestyle diseases. And so, you know, natural health, that's why I'm so passionate about it. <laughs> Yeah, hundred percent. When we talk about this this theme of heal country and the the concept of healing, we you've obviously outlined 
some of the trauma that, that still lingers in your family. Have you found any sort of solace or any ways where you have found healing? I guess there's, there's a few different levels to spiritually, yes. Not long after losing my father to a heart attack. Yeah, it was my faith that got me through that grieving. Uh, a book called um, Ministry of Healing. I've been exposed to, you know, I didn't just come to the knowledge of it intellectually, but I was exposed to this through my early years and my my mother's lifestyle. So, you know, her, her life has been a, a testament to, you know, to me as well. Yeah, spiritually, physically, you know, emotionally, I've had the opportunity to, to work through a, a lot of that trauma. It's interesting that you actually mentioned some of those those problems, you know, just browsing around the web and, you know, you, you hear from various people who are not educated on this topic saying various things and I'm sure that you've encountered systemic racism. I'll just share a little bit about my experience. I think the turning point for me was I had this unit at university about Indigenous Australians. It was all communications students were required to do this unit. And for me, it was eye-opening to do this subject because I found out so many things I had no idea about. And it pretty much answered all the questions about all the stereotypes that exist out there. So, for example, one of the things I found out was you know, a a general stereotype, which is a very negative stereotype, is Indigenous Australians have, you know, drinking or or drug problems or something like that. And Mm. I found out through this course, actually, that a lot of the reasons stem from, you know, when men arrived on Australia's shores and, and began killing Indigenous Australians through the stolen generation and through the taking of land as well. That loss of identity for Indigenous Australians was absolutely tragic and to the point where still to, to this day they're trying to, to deal with it, the loss of land, because they are so connected with their land. Does there lie a problem with general Australian attitude towards Indigenous Australians because things like these, there's a lack of education? Here's the irony in it. Not only do we endure the impacts of almost being wiped out, that was the plan that we were a, a savage race and eventually, you know, we would die out. So, you know, we endured past policies of genocide, massacres at the hand of private industry and also law enforcement, you know, countless numbers of in- injustices by the judicial system. Removal from our, our land, the, the heartbeat of our society, um, removal from our families. And then we have to deal with the psychological warfare. That's, that's the word I was looking for. Mm. So we, we do all that. And then we deal with the psychological warfare. So you, you, you're told, you know, these the incorrect perceptions of, of your community about being welfare dependent, being lazy, being violent, being drunks, and people that don't contribute to the society. So how's the irony of that? You know, after you've just survived 200 years of colonialism and then you cop from the community that psychological warfare Mm. through those negative stereotypes. That's the realities of, um, you know, being an Aboriginal person in this community. You know, that's, that's what you're faced with. And there's multiple levels of that prejudice that you come up against. 
most of it you're not even aware of. But some of those systems of oppression, it might be just accessing the economy. Your grandmother hasn't had access to, to education past your know, primary school level because that was the policy. They were they were trained to, to, to go into domestic roles. So, you know, we could drive a lot of the pioneering industries. But no one in your family, you know, has had access to education. Or you were eliminated from the economy because you weren't able to work or get paid the same amount. And if you did work, it was stolen wages. And then you get terms like, well, you know, welfare dependent, government gives you, you know, too, you know the problems are the government gives you too much money. So these are some of the frustrations, I guess, that, that I deal with. The realities of it, and, you know, this is what the, the data will tell you, there are more non-drinkers in our community per capita than there are drinkers. I learned this when students were, were doing a, a responsible service of alcohol course, and they, they flagged some issues they had in terms of you know, what, what, were they, what they were being taught. There are high levels of substance abuse in our community, but that's just medicating from a lot of the impacts of colonisation. You talk to any homeless person on the street you know, and you know, that's having issues with substance abuse and addictions, all of them have got a, a horrible story. That is, you didn't just wake up one day and say, look, I'm not going to be able to function in society. And so, you know, I don't think really that many of our community have uh, a real awareness of some of these issues or even educated on, on the facts and, and the truth. I think the, one of the most common ones that I hear about Indigenous Australians is that, that one that you mentioned that Indigenous Australians are quote-unquote lazy and that they get free welfare. I mean, it's a very sort of harmful stereotype that's peddled around that um, they get paid millions and they get special treatment and that sort of stuff. Is this actually the case? I've worked in the career space for a long time. I often have people that will call up and say, look, I've, we've just found out that for generations I have Aboriginal heritage, um, but... That was, I guess, covered from us, or it was hidden, because basically their grandparents chose to not identify as a means of survival in this country. At that point, there, there, there's some nervousness around accessing services that are available, whether it be employment initiatives, educational, you know, incentives, and, and so on. What you take on when you identify as an Aboriginal in this, a person in this country is you know, there, there may be some initiatives that you can access, but it's nothing compared to, okay, then it may be the cultural obligations. You're becoming a part of a community that's the most disadvantaged community, you know, in the world, in a developed country. So that psychological warfare that, you know, you will then have to deal with, issues with identity. So with no choice of, of, of their own, they may have been a result of the assimilation policy. Um, so they may be light-skinned, but their grandmother was, you know, their, their in, in indigeneity or their heritage was stolen from them. So a generation or two later, yeah, that's important. I've got a, a young brother who just moved over from Tasmania and it's so important for him to acknowledge his heritage. And yet he's a fair-skinned brother. He has to continually deal with ignorance and justify his heritage. He'll spend a lifetime doing that. He lives in his own country. 
he knows who his grandparents, his links, you know, his mother. They've, they've done work to, to go back and connect to that precious history. But the realities of his life is, you know, he, he will be dealing with, with a lot of that. So, yeah, there's, there's a few issues, you know, I guess, relating issues around the assimilation policy in terms of, you know, okay, what, what do people get? Even what the government distributes, you know, I, I work in service delivery on a state government level. And the reality of it is a lot of the money, it's taken up through service delivery and it's, it's bureaucracies um, that, you know, eat up a lot of the funding. Is the funding enough, anywhere near enough to address some of the issues? No, not even close. Mm. The health issues that exist in, in our communities, not even close. The issues of incarceration and you know, government tools, there's this propaganda that's put out to the community. And, and I've dealt with comments, <laughs> you know, in a service delivery context where people will say, oh, there's, there's a form there, you know, you, you sign, you can identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or, you know, that, that's just part of a lot of, you know, government forms. And I hear comments like, I, I wish I was Aboriginal. And I start to you know, I think to myself, you really wish you were Aboriginal? Like, you, you're seeing things on one layer. Let, okay, so first of all, your family might have, you know, been wiped out. If you were Aboriginal, you're lucky to have survived in this country. It makes me laugh when I, when I hear comments like that. Because it's flipped. This is where, the, you know, this is for me where how things can be flipped on you. Where now you're dealing with, because people don't understand affirmative action in the workplace. So now people will tell, well, let's just say you've got into uni on a scholarship or you've got a job opportunity as an Aboriginal traineeship. Now you're in the workplace and sadly you, you, you will come up against people that don't understand what affirmative action is. And you're dealing with, well, you guys actually get everything for free from the government. Free cars, free houses. This isn't fair. And a lot of <laughs> non-Aboriginal people I know have really strong opinions on it. And it's not based on fact. Mm. It's based on, on, on propaganda um, that they've been fed, you know, over, over generations. Mm. Some of it through the media, some of it through newspaper articles, some of it through literature. When you look at an issue that's so complex that encompasses some of the things you just mentioned, includes government policies, includes media, and includes Joe Blow's attitude down the road and his opinion, how can you even start to begin to bring about a positive change when it's so deeply rooted in our country? Where can you start? Like, have you noticed any positive changes over the years? Has there been a shift in that direction or is... Where, where do we start? We start at education and health. Yeah. So this, this is why NAIDOC week, I'll, I'll tie, tie it back into NAIDOC week. Two, the year before last, one of the themes was um, voice treaty truth. So, you know, the, the solutions and how we move forward, I think, are, are in those three themes. It's important for us to have a voice, to share our stories of trauma with the community, to, to start that process of healing. Um, the next part is treaty, coming together. You know, our, our community is made up of, of relationships. You know, your neighbour, you know, your, your own neighbourhood, the people that live next to you, the sporting clubs that you're a part of, whatever it is in your community. This is an opportunity for Australians to start that healing process mm. and start that education process. But it, it, it is about coming together and relationships are central. 
um, to that process of yeah, acknowledging the wrongs that, that have been committed as a nation. I think, I think we all, you know, uh, that, that's important to own because if you're not part of the, the, the realities is that we, we, we continue to enjoy the privileges of those systems that we've, we've put in place. And the third one is truth. And I think truth is so important. Truth sits above all of those. And the, the truth will set us free. If you don't have access to education, you know, understanding what happened you know, in, the, in the political landscape, then you're at danger of the lies that, that's been bred for, you know, of, of, of digesting those lies. Those lies have been, you know, through our education system. I remember in school, um, I was in a geography class and one of the, you know, my geography teacher in year nine pointed out that, you know, we were, Aboriginal people were a link to, to, to the apes and she pointed out the shape of my head. Whoa. As a live example, just to illustrate that ideology. So, you know, things like social Darwinism is still perpetuating you know, some of these truths. So truth is important. You know, you need to be able to access truth. And, you know, there are many platforms in which you can, uh, I guess our community can start accessing that, you know, that truth. That our culture is not, you know, all those negative stereotypes about laziness and drunks and you know, there's, there's a long list we, we can go through. But it, it's not the realities. For me, I've, I've been brought up in a, in a non-drinking family. Part of that truth is also linked to NATO Week, celebrating the successes that we have. We've still got a long way to go, though. Just in response to one of the things you mentioned there about building a relationship and, you know, acknowledging the past as well, uh, a lot of Australians will remember that it was actually over a decade ago when Kevin Rudd stood up and, and made an apology. I've heard it said before that, you know, that, that one apology is enough. From your point of view, was that one apology from the government? What sort of significance did that moment have and was it enough? Was it too little? Was it, was it not enough in that moment? How does that moment lie with you and your peoples? Yeah. Okay, look, I'll, I'll do a, a parallel. I think it was a starting point, but it was words followed with no action. You know, it means nothing. And when I say action, yeah, there, there was no, my grandmother, she's going, she's part of a class action um, for compensation. You know, what happened to, to her family. And that, you know, gives people an opportunity to, to, to deal with some of the trauma that was caused. We had, after the massacre in, I think, Port, Port Arthur, the, the government did a buyback of, of guns in Australia. So high powered, you know, um, weapons and I don't know all the details, but basically a lot of farmers and people with guns, you know, they, they, they were confiscated and, and they were destroyed. It was good. They, they, they took them off the market. Semi-automatic machine guns and, and, and whatever. Everyone that owned a gun was compensated duly and, and appropriately for what was taken from them. That was, you know, a material thing. You know, people were ripped from their families and there's been no real steps taken to reciprocity to heal some of those wounds, mm. to access trauma counselling. So, yeah, it, that, was, that was a long time ago, 1997. We, we yet to see any, you know, any, any follow-through from, from what happened there. But, you know, I, I commend the Prime Minister at the time. 
even something that's saying sorry, even acknowledging it. You know, people were so outraged. How dare he, you know, take any form of responsibility as a, our nation's leader for saying sorry? That's the bit that astounds me and how people, you know, the opposition to that was, was enormous. The people listening today, they, they may have already had a lot of their barriers challenged by you. You know, we've heard the story of your family as well. Can you sort of tell us about what your family are up to? Yeah, so, look, thank you for the opportunity to, to share a yarn about my family, you know, as an Aboriginal person. It's something that I love to do. And also, yeah, it, it highlights some of those values that have come, come through my life and some of the achievements of, of my um, elders also, you know, I find help change perceptions as well. So, yeah, I'll, I'll share a yarn about my, my, one of my grandfathers. His name is Charlie Perkins. He's my father's father's brother, younger brother. I lost my, sadly, my father lost his father and my grandfather when he was 11. And so I never grew up without me, with my father's father. So this man, Charlie Perkins, was that grandfather figure for us. His athletic attributes gave him opportunities to achieve success on a national level here in Australia. He then was one of the first Australians to go over in England and play soccer. And he played on the fringe, I think, in the fringes of Liverpool and played on the fringes with a team in Everton. He finally got a contract with one of the greatest teams of all time in 1969 with Manchester United. He actually turned down that contract to come back to Australia and pursue a fight for justice. And part of that pathway also took him to America. He spent some time with Martin Luther King Jr., learn about their civil rights movement over there. He then came back to Australia, and he was one of the first Aboriginal people to graduate from the university. Wow. So, yeah, and it doesn't stop there. He then led a movement um, called the Freedom Rise, where apartheid laws existed in areas of Australia, Remembering that South Africa adopted, they learned racism from Australia. So they adopted their apartheid regime from Australia. So, you know, his goal was to confront some of these injustices in areas of outback New South Wales and led the Freedom Rides with a whole bunch of uni students. I also want to add that 80% of those students on that and, and people fighting for that cause were non-Aboriginal Australians fighting for Aboriginal rights. That's actually healing. When, I, when I've gone back and, and researched some of those stories, that's healing for me to know that Aboriginal Australians out there, white Australians that um, have stood up for injustices in this country and helped further our cause. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even while you're talking about the, the topic of football, I'm a massive football fan. I, I go for Adelaide United. And one of our, mm. well, our second highest scorer ever, his name is Travis Dodd, was an mm. Indigenous man. And he actually became the first ever Indigenous person to score for Australia in an international match. So we're very proud yeah. of, of him mm. for what for he did for, for club and country there as well. Just the stories you mentioned really break down some of those, those barriers and misconceptions. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of work to be, still be done, obviously, as we've, you know, unpacked throughout this podcast. You know, for the average 
person who may be listening to this and and this is the first time they've ever considered it from this point of view or this perspective, just want to ask you, Brenton, what are some what are some resources that you would point them to to help guide any further reading that they may may be interested in doing? It's a great question, Daniel. There's an abundance of resources that people can access. Google's one of the best. There's a lot of stories out there in, in the way of newspaper articles on contemporary issues. There's also a lot of literature on people's stories. I like to point people to, I guess, these resources because when you change the narrative, it helps shape people's worldview and it goes a little way to achieving that paradigm shift that people need. So stories are powerful. I'll point people to a book called Very Big Journey. It's a story of my, my grandmother's cousin that was, was taken away from, from Boa It's now a resource for kids in the Northern Territory um, and used within the education system there. Another favourite is Sally Morgan's book, My Place. And it, and it really covers the topic of assimilation and it's won national awards in Australian literature as well. I could go on for days talking about books. For those people that, you know, love to immerse themselves in, in, in the virtual space, there's a really good resource that you can feast on called Common Ground Australia. Mm. And you can access world-class cinema. The young girl or young woman who put that together is Arundel Woman from uh, Alice Springsway and her father's an award-winning um, filmmaker. So... Because of that, she's been able to list uh, a whole lot of really high-quality stories through film that people can um, enjoy. Also, you know, we, we talk about you know, resources and within books, but just getting out on country, there are places within your community that you can go and, and you know, just stop to read maybe some of the local cultural significance of that, of that area. And you can tap into, you know, what your local shire or local council might have available as well. And I think that's one of the most powerful things and practical things that people can do is really start where you are, learn about the history on whose land that you live, work and operate. And we'd like to encourage people to tap into all of those resources, tap into, you know, what's available and celebrate the week celebrate our First Nations culture, enjoy it with your family and take this to the conversations that you have and you know, experience our culture. There you go. Wise words from the man himself. If you're not in lockdown around the country, uh, feel free to check out what NAIDOC events are happening near you. Powerful uh, recommendations there. I think I might just add one of my own as well in there. While we're talking about cinema, is a film that came out earlier this year called High Ground. Went and mm. watched it in the cinema with my with my now fiance, who's you know from Poland, so she's still learning about Australia's history. But it's a very brutal, but very honest and very important, as far as an education point of view, look at Australia's colonial history. 
I would highly encourage that anyone go watch that film because it is honest, in my opinion, the best Australian film ever made. So I would also chuck that one in there if, um, if anyone's keen to check that one out. But uh, in the meantime, Brenton, thank you so much, man, for, for joining us on Signs of the Times Radio this week. I know you've definitely left me with things to think about, so I, I thank you for, for that. Oh, no, thank you, brother. What a privilege to, to share the airwaves with you. And, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to share some of my family's story. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au in Australia or signsofthetimes.org.nz in New Zealand.